Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined today by my esteemed colleagues, Ashley Jacobs and Kali Foxman. Hello, friends. Hi. Hi, Miriam. So today, the three of us uh, are going to be speaking with a very, very special guest. Many people often wonder things like, how much do we really know about the lives of our parents and the secrets in their past? Who are our parents really? How do we delineate fact from fiction in our family histories? What parts are real and what parts have we needed to be real? Many people may wonder, but few actually embark on a quest to uncover the truth. Our guest today is among the rare, brave few who actually did from submitting Freedom of Information Act requests to seeing several spiritual mediums, our guest left no stone unturned. Author Judy Bolton-Fassman joins us today to speak about her book debut. Asylum, a memoir of family secrets, recounts her search for answers to the mysteries embedded in the lives of her Cuban-born mother and her elusive all-American father. Judy's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Cognoscenti, and several anthologies. She has received a Pushcart Prize nomination and is a four-time recipient of the Simon Rockauer Award for Essay from the American Jewish Press Association, the recipient of the Alonzo G. Davis Fellowship awarded to a Latinx writer from the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and was the Aaron Donovan Fellow in Nonfiction at the Mineral School. On top of all those great achievements, Judy is also our colleague, the beloved arts and culture writer at JewishBoston.com, whom I hired in 2016. We're colleagues, we're fans, and we are thrilled to welcome Judy Bolton-Fassman to the Vibe of the Tribe for the very first time. Welcome, Judy. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And has it really been since 2016? It has, if you can believe it. Wow. Well, it's, it, it's, I've loved every minute of it. Well, we've loved having you, and we're here to celebrate some firsts with you. Obviously, yes, this is your first time on the pod, but more important, this is your first book and a profoundly personal one at that. At this moment, having published the book and having it out in the hands of readers, how do you feel? At first, I was terrified at the idea of the story being out there. I don't know what I was expecting because I knew that it was going to be published, but then I was excited. I was excited to talk about the book. I was, and, and I was excited to have the story, to, to kind of figure out the story in interviews, in essays that I was asked to write related to the book. So I'm feeling pretty good about it being out there right now. As we mentioned in the introduction, not everybody would be cut out for this kind of investigation you go through, but you write that you always felt you had a special mission to solve mysteries. You write, I was proud of my inquisitive nature. It was a way to consolidate power. Tell us about Judy Bolton, girl detective. Ah, I'm glad you brought that up. Judy Bolton has sort of always been my alter ego since I was a little kid. I was like, six or seven years old when I first saw my name on the spine of a book. And it, as you can imagine, it, it absolutely thrilled me. And it sort of fit into my role in the family. Everybody always has a distinct role in their family. And mine was curiosity, and um, which both intrigued my parents and also annoyed them. 
I was just very curious about finding out who they were. I would go through my father's bureau. I would go through my mother's makeup table. Even canceled checks were of interest to me. And I can't tell you that at six or seven or eight, I understood what a canceled check was. But I loved seeing my father's handwriting. In fact, in the book, I write a bit about his handwriting. It was very unique and distinctive, particularly his print which I which I admired and so wanted to to imitate and, and emulate. So the way that I experienced this memoir was set right off the bat by the incredibly gripping prologue. From that point, even though I knew perfectly well that it was a nonfiction book, my brain started to process it as a novel where anything could happen. Uh, we would love if you could read a selection from the prologue and tell us how you decided to use this specific incident as the perfect framing for the story. Okay, why don't I read first and then I'll answer your question. Does that sound? Yes, that please. Sound good? good. I'll just read a little bit from the beginning of the prologue. The prologue is called Burn This, and it starts this way. There is a Jewish saying that an uninterpreted dream is like an unopened letter from God a letter that surely must contain secrets of the universe. The only letters I received that muggy summer when I stayed on the non-air-conditioned side of the 92nd Street Y were from my father, usually cheery cards, well, hello over there, or thin sheets of yellow legal-sized paper with bits of curmudgeonly wisdom des designed to steer my focus away from my recent heartbreak. You're a smart kid. You can do this. You can finish that darn thesis. Don't let all that time and money be for naught. This time was different. In my mail was an unusually thick envelope that bore the return address of my father's Hartford office. I knew he had more on his mind than usual that summer, and the heavily taped envelope with too much postage signaled as much. It came on the heels of another letter he had sent, his more typical one-page kind, telling me, I shall no longer pay the reservation fee at your school. During the summer of 1985, I commuted on the Madison Avenue bus to the computer lab at Columbia University, where I struggled to finish a collection of short stories for my MFA. It was also the summer my heart shattered into a million jagged pieces when my boyfriend vanished, as if our eight years together had never happened. My loneliness, or as my father put it, lonesomeness, not only saddened him, it magnified his own feelings of aloneness in the world. My father was not one for phone calls. After the initial how are you's, he was all breathing and silence as he had taken to writing me a couple of times a week. His postscript was always the same. Write to me at the office. I don't want your mother to know that we're corresponding. We both knew my mother would be wildly suspicious were she not included in our correspondence. While my father was a reluctant talker under the best of circumstances, he was a formal old-fashioned writer who used words like shant and cheers and salutations. He always signed his cards and notes to me, your father. Love was not in his vocabulary. Did he love me? I knew he worried about me. I was the sensitive firstborn daughter who was the frequent target of her mother's hair trigger moods. His worry was love, but I sensed this latest correspondent, massive as it was, would reflect that he was older, more tired, and showing more overt signs of his Parkinson's disease. He had already grumbled that my mother was, quote, getting more difficult to tolerate, finally defeating him 
with her relative youth. She was 17 years younger. And with her epic tantrums and fiercely won economic independence. This time, I was sure he would dispense with his bonhomie, his homespun wisdom, his greetings and salutations, and finally tell me all that I had been yearning to know since my earliest days. I carried the large envelope carefully to my room as if it were fragile. Addressed in my father's now shaky print, it felt substantial, weighty. Was it an opus of his life, a compilation of regrets, a decision to divorce my mother at last, along with a laundry list of her failures, her denunciations? Whatever it was, it called for a private place in which to read it. As I went up the elevator, I trembled with the recognition of yet another possibility, that it contained a suicide note. The letters of my father's handprinting, once so tall and commanding, had lately begun to droop. My father's printing had been his forte, his identity, and his imprint on the world. It announced that he was a serious, meticulous, determined man. I had always loved and saluted the stalwart letters he formed, one and the same on birthday cards, valentines, and now in the letters he sent me, in honor of the Navy man. But the last time I was home, I noticed that his left arm shook, and he walked with a shuffle. Leave me alone, he muttered, whenever I asked how he was feeling. So you had that very, very uh, gripping prologue. How did you decide that that letter, that incident, was the way you wanted to set the story going? It was certainly an inciting incident, as you as you point out. I think that that you know when I was starting to work on the on the book, I think that 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 letter, that incident, was front and center in my mind, and I knew that it would start the story rolling in a way that I wanted to present the mystery and present who my father was. I think it was a a portrait of my father as I wanted the reader to initially meet him. So you describe some rather upsetting moments as a reader, upsetting moments from your childhood growing up in Connecticut in the 60s and 70s, including some vitriolic arguments between your parents and the subsequent uh, visits to your house, domestic visits to your house from the police. We never really know what someone is experiencing in their lives, and that extends to friends and colleagues as well as, as parents. I was continually reminding myself, no, this this isn't fiction. This is Judy's life. There was a really especially heartbreaking moment um, when you were doing the ritual of Tashlich and you're throwing chunks of a roll into the water and you're reciting your sins, quote unquote, for the sin of laughing, for the sin of setting the table wrong, for the sin of flushing my vitamins down the toilet, for the sin of having common brown eyes, for the sin of being born. We're recording this episode close to Rosh Hashanah when the Tashlich ritual uh, takes place. Looking back now from this vantage point you're in now, what would you say to that younger version of yourself doing that very, very sad Tashlich? Well, first of all, I want to I want to give a little bit of context to that scene. Um, Sundays were difficult in my house for a variety of reasons, and. That particular scene is very typical of what would happen on a Sunday. My father would gather the three of us and take us to feed the ducks. And we would take stale rolls and, and, and feed the ducks. So I was always, it always felt like I was doing an improvised tashlich throughout my life. 
And I thought a lot about your question about what I would say to my younger self. Of course, the first thing that comes to mind is it's going to get better. It's going to be okay. But I think that in those times, I was sort of in survival mode and I was very much present tense and I wasn't future thinking. And I think I would maybe try and instill in that younger girl that there was a future, that the present tense was not everything that was going to happen to her. But it's hard to kind of go back and and, and think about what I would say. I, I thought about your question throughout the week, actually, and I don't have a singular answer for it. I think that, you know, dwelling in the present tense, I would tell her not to dwell so much in the present tense and to step back, breathe and think about what it would be like when she grew up. This book is about so many journeys and types of journeys through time and space, through memory and ritual, through life and death. You write very beautifully about the passing of your father and the act of physically burying him. You also took on the very massive commitment, anybody who's done it knows how massive a commitment it is, of reciting Kaddish for your father. You describe Kaddish in the book as, quote, a spiritual jetpack strapped to a parent's soul, helping it to arrive in heaven. And then later you say, in 2003, what would have been my father's 84th birthday, I led the Mariv service for the first time in a minion. I was thrilled to learn the order of the service, thrilled to be leading the Kaddish, thrilled to feel as if I was getting closer to my father even in death. What did you learn about him and also yourself on a spiritual level during that year of mourning and saying Kaddish? Well, Kaddish is is and has always been very important to the book. The book started out as the year I said the Kaddish, but it was before I had gone on to investigate things about my father's life. And it read as a very internal, personal document, almost like a diary. And it didn't have, how can I say this, appeal or I don't think it would interest someone outside of my family. And it was almost as if I were writing it for my two children. But the Kaddish remained as one of the, as one of the important strands in the book, even after I found out about my father's political leanings and his trips through Central America. That was, that was always going to stay and that was always going to be really important to me that the Kaddish be there because it really set up a posthumous relationship with my father. That's really where I sort of got to know him. I said the Kaddish every day. I always went to the evening minion because I had two small children at the time. And that was the most convenient way for me to to do that, to, to say, to get in my Kaddish for the day. And it was my time to talk to him, to commune with him. We didn't always have that in our in our personal relationship in our relationship when he was alive. Although it, it did happen a little bit more towards towards the end where we sort of uh, formed this bond and this friendship as I write in the prologue, we were writing to each other that summer. But the Kaddish was really an opportunity to be with my father, to be in relationship with my father. And it also gave me a community and it I slowly returned to Judaism by simply just by going to to synagogue every single day. It was a very odd time for me. My kids were in day school, yet I wasn't sure if I was a believer. 
And that time in the, that time saying the Kaddish was a way to figure those things out. Judy, the part of your story that resonated most with me was the juxtaposition between your parents' identities and the tensions and conflicts they inevitably created. You are all-American Ashkenazi dad and your Cuban-born Sephardi mom. Being a first-generation American on my mom's side, I saw some parallels to my own upbringing. When you wrote about how you were trying to hide your hairy legs, I remember doing the same thing in middle school, and oh my god, the embarrassment came flooding back. It was awful. I also remember my dad trying to correct phrases like, open the light. You describe how your father had an English-only rule in the house when your uncle came from Cuba to live with your parents and little you. And yet it was necessary for you to learn Spanish and Latino to communicate with your grandparents. What balance do you have now between these parts of your identity? I was recently asked to write about my dual identities. Um, and I certainly address it in, uh, in asylum, particularly that summer that I, my mother left my dad and took the three of us to Florida to Little Havana to be with our, uh, to be with our Cuban relatives. I have always, my dual identity has always been a very big part of me, but I'm, I'm a little sad that I'm starting to lose my Spanish a bit. I don't practice it as much as I, as I used to. I only speak it to my mother who lapses into Spanish now more often than not. So it's always, it's all, I've always, you know, Winston Churchill has this, had this saying that really struck me that he was half American and half British, but all British. And I think the needle on that moved a lot with my parents. Sometimes I was all American when I felt closer to my dad. And sometimes I was all Cuban or Latinx when I felt closer to my mother. And you, you know, Ashley, you mentioned the, the cultural gaps that, that, that inevitably happen when you're a first generation American. And my mother desperately tried to transplant her warm, humid Havana to her, to the freezing Connecticut winters. And that was very jarring. That was very jarring for me. And yet looking back, I am so happy that I had these dual identities because I think it informs so much of who I am. And it gave me a second language, even though my second language has to be dusted off and uh, can be a bit rusty sometimes. I very much enjoyed your description of your youthful Orthodox rebellion. You write, None of the grown-ups around me saw my rigid piousness for what it was, a rebellion, a need for individuality, and also a search for structure in my messy home life. Tell us more about this foray into Orthodoxy in that point in your life. That was a very primary event in my life. My parents sent me to a yeshiva in sixth grade, a very traditional yeshiva. The girls were separated from the boys in class. Most of the people there were were very observant. And I'm not sure exactly what they were expecting, but I sort of got into it because I wanted to be like my classmates and I wanted to belong. And I was kid I was a kid that was looking for community. And the Orthodox uh, way of life really appealed to me because I felt like I belonged to something. But uh, this made my parents very unhappy. I, at one point, I would only eat cold food in their kitchen. 
I would not turn on any lights. I would not ride with them. I would not do anything on Saturdays with them. And um, it, it, it frustrated them. So they ended up sending me to a Catholic girls' school for high school. They did not see that as a future for me. And in retrospect, although I don't think they handled it as well as they could have, which is no surprise given uh, who they were, if you read the book, I still think it was the right decision. And they said I could go to any school I wanted as long as I lived at home. And I wanted to go to an all-girls school. And one of the few all-girls schools available were was the local Catholic high school, Mount St. Joseph Academy. I went there and I was totally a fish out of water. I was strange. I, I prayed during study hall. I wrote the, the letters, uh, Beis Samech Dalad, above my, my homework. But eventually I made friends. And the nuns then were becoming more modernized, particularly the younger ones, and they were out of their habits and they were doing all sorts of cool so- social justice projects. And they were very, very kind to me and very respectful of my Jewishness. I, I never had to go to prayer services. I never had to take religion classes. And I ended up really loving the school, having friendships for life, and learning a lot about myself in, in the process. One of my favorite moments in your book is when you snuck to sit into the chair in the lobby. Oh, the Pope's chair. Yeah. The Pope's chair. The Pope's chair. It was like, I was reading it and I just like, I felt like the excitement that you have when you're, you know, a teenager and you like know that you're about to do something wrong and you just like can't wait to do it. Just like that, that thrill. Like I felt that in reading that piece and it was just, it was just so funny to me. Yeah. That was a chair that was roped off with velvet, with velvet ropes. It was a very fancy chair. It was in this, you know, it's in its own room. Pope Pius XII, I believe, had visited the school in the early 1950s and sat in the chair. And of course, at the time, I didn't know about the history of Pope Pius XII and the Holocaust. Having found that out, it makes it extra kind of delicious that I was able to do that and and rebel that way. One of the most jaw-dropping revelations for me in reading this book was that for a while you worked at the ADL and your job was to monitor extremist groups here in America. You write, within six months of my stint on the right-wing desk, I was one of the country's foremost experts on the KKK and neo-Nazis. I knew more about those closed groups than I did about my family. The extremists eventually learned my name, and it both thrilled and terrified me when they wrote me up in their hate screeds. Unquote. And I wrote, in the in the margins of the book, icon, hero, legend, very large, because I was like, oh, my God, Judy. So I would love to know what insights do you have that you gleaned from that time about the surge of hate group activity we are seeing now in the present moment? When I monitored right-wing extremists, they were very much a fringe, and they were not perceived as, as any kind of national or international threat. They were just these kind of crazy people in isolated parts of the country doing weird things. I remember the first time I, I started monitoring these people, I read about Holocaust revisionism and I read garbage like the pictures were staged and Frank's diary wasn't written in, in ink that was available at the time. I mean, all of these really, I, I guess I, can only describe them as stupid things. They just sounded so stupid. And nobody was really 
felt really threatened by the right right wing extremism. But over the years, and particularly in the last few years, with the rise of anti-Semitism, I have been watching incredulously that these people have taken some sort of foothold in our country. And I can't believe it because I remember when they were nothing, when they were not when they were not at all regarded as 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 anything, as just just a bunch of clowns. And now it's a very, it's a very real threat. And I can imagine, I monitored, and I write in the book, I monitored these groups before the internet. So my hands would be, my hands would be dirty with, you know, print and mimeograph sheets and all very hand to mouth kind of thing. I mean, it was all very disorganized hand to mouth. It amazes me now how galvanized and technologically forward these groups are and are really in the public's consciousness right now. You weave the word tsum throughout your story. It's a Kabbalistic term that I just learned for the first time in my Rosh Chodesh group a couple months ago, actually. But it's a beautiful word, and I love the meaning of it. What does it mean? What is the significance of it to you? And how is it related in your search for answers? I think every writer has to perform his or her or their own tsum in that they have to make space for the story, make space for the memory, and make space for the voices that are part of the story to help you tell the story. So writing memoir really is is an act of tsum. It's an act of retreating into the self. And you're very, very internal and you're very, very inside of yourself looking out in the world, looking out at your memories when writing. So I, I think that it was, I, I, I think the image helped me actually write the book when I learned about the image as well. It helped me, it, it, it placed me inside of myself and placed me to, to remember. Judy, I love this quote so much. You wrote, everyone's story begins long before birth and goes on long after death, like a dead star still emitting light for a thousand years. Everyone arrives in this world trailing centuries of ancestors and stories. My story took off when my father, though older by society's standards for first-time fatherhood, was, to me, unimaginably young, and I was still stardust somewhere. What do you hope the legacy of this book is for your family, especially for your own kids? I really, my father was an intriguing figure all my life, as you, as you mentioned um, in that quote. He was a much older dad by those standards in, you know, 1960. Now he wouldn't be. He was 42 when I was born. But now that's, that's not old at all. He was regarded that way. And I think he was regarded that way also because there was such an age difference between my parents. My, my kids have been extremely supportive, particularly now that they're adults of this project. And I wanted them to know who I was and where I came from and consequently who they are and where they came from because it's a, it's a complicated legacy. It's a complicated history, but it's an important one. And they have all of these strands in them, the Sephardic strand, the Latinx strand. My grandparent, my maternal grandparents were born in Greece and Turkey. And I think at one point I write in the book that Ladino was the language of our ancient crowd. And it was the language that they 
took with them throughout their centuries, throughout their various exiles. My family, my particularly my maternal family, but I think all Jewish families are marked by exile. Exile is is sort of front and center in our experience. And I wanted my kids to have a sense of where their exiles were, where they turned up, and a sense that that there was that there were many languages that contributed to their their being. So the window is is wide open throughout throughout your life. But I will say that although this book is my first published book, I've been writing all my life. I mean, the first book I wrote was when I was eight years old, and I think in that article I I say that it was a a, a a ripoff of a children's classic called Mr. Popper's Penguins. My book was called Mr. Swanson's Seals. And I had publication very much on my mind back then. I don't know who put the stamps on the envelope, but I sent it to a legal publisher and the publisher wrote me a delightful letter back wishing me much success in my, in my writing career, but that he didn't publish fiction or children's books. But I've always, I've, I've, I've always written. I was sort of always the writer. Again, we all have roles in our family. I was sort of the writer in the family. And any jobs that I took on, professional jobs, always sort of had, um, had a, had an attachment to journalism and, and, and to writing. And I wrote many years a parenting column. And that was, that was sort of memoirish and that I wrote about my kids with their approval. And then I couldn't write about them anymore because mm, they wouldn't let me write about their first dates or their first, whatever first they were having as teenagers. So that, that wasn't going to work, but I did it for, um, did it for almost eight years. So I've always written, as you know, Kali, and, um, still writing. You just show up. You just do it. You do it every day. And I think that's what I've been doing, uh, certainly for a good 55 years. <laughs> Love that. Obviously, writing a memoir at this caliber that's so exquisite and beautiful and cohesive and so wonderfully interwoven is a much more significant undertaking than writing articles or Mr. Swanson Seals a Penguin parody. So talk to us about your writing process and what was it like both revisiting and revealing such intimate parts of yourself? I am an autobiographical writer, even when I was writing fiction. I, as I mentioned in reading the prologue, I was getting my Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing with a focus on fiction. And my thesis was a collection of short stories. And when during the process of writing this, and this, this book came in fits and starts, and I restarted it a bunch of times as I was doing more research. I realized that the first stirrings of Asylum were in some of those stories, particularly in the title story of, of the collection. But this, this is, you're in it, when you write a book, you're in it for the long haul. And as one editor once told me, writing books can really suck because they are so much work and they are, they are so draining. But I took a lot of workshops. I kept at it with writing essays based on the book. And then I, I actually worked with a wonderful editor who, a developmental editor who kind of helped me see a shape to the book and to put it all together. So it was all in all, it took me, I would say since 
the time I discovered my father's secret, a uh, big secret, it took me probably 12 years on and off. And, you know, I was doing other things in the interim and I was writing personal essays and I was, of course, reporting and, and doing other things, but it took me, it took me a long time. So that's just the nature of the beast. So Judy, girl detective, what mysteries are calling to you to solve next? Well, you've all read the book and I hope um, your listeners will read the book and uh, discover that my mother is quite the character. So I've been working on essays about her and I'm going to print out what I have soon, as soon as I sort of have a, an abundance of material and see if how I'm going to put that put that together. I expect that it will be a long process as well, but it's one that I, I want to embark on. And despite the difficulties that she and I have had, I want to embark on a relationship with her as well. I think it's important and I think it will feed into my own identity because since I, I so identify with my dual, my dual identities. I love that. That's really wonderful. Uh, well, Judy, thank you for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. It was so lovely to have you here. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you so much. And I loved seeing all of you wonderful colleagues. I don't see you nearly often enough. So thank you so much for, for talking to me about my book, for reading my book, and for supporting me. Oh, we love you. Thank you. And um Thank you to Ashley and Kali for, for joining us today uh, on this episode with you, Judy. And thank you to everybody out there for listening. Please do check the show notes for a link to Buy Asylum, a Memoir of Family Secrets by Judy Bolton-Fassman. And if you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review the Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods. Thank you and take care. Thank you.